we typically preach through books of the Bible, typically line by line, verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, uh, depending upon the genre. But that means we come across tough passages. Uh, if our normal strategy was to primarily inspire you, Chris Schlegel wouldn't have read that text this morning, right? If that was the only thing that this morning was about was inspiration, motivation, or to kind of uh, gas you up a little bit, then we shouldn't touch this. But we touch, try to walk through all parts of all, whether they're difficult to understand, hard to interpret, if they're confusing, if they discuss on sensitive things like suffering or injustice, we want to talk about it. We, we believe what God has said about his voice and his word, and that all of this is good for instruction, right? And correction, and rebuke, and training. So even at this, no matter your initial objections, your pushback, or whatever is going on inside of you, you have to know that God says what he says, and he says this is good for our instruction, our rebuke, our correction our training in holiness, in godliness. Now, the other thing would just be consider if your God never challenges you in your thinking or in your life, then maybe you're not worshiping the God of the Bible, but you're worshiping your version of him, okay? I say that to say just to kind of clear out some of the, uh, the undergrowth so we can get even to the main topic. I clear out the undergrowth because, why? Because some of us, would say, hey, uh, this is how God thinks, or this is how he sees things, or this, and it all always connects to how you see things, and how you think, and how you operate, and he is always affirming what you already know, never challenging you to what you're not doing, you don't know, and the wisdom you have yet to apply, which means I'm just trying to clear up the undergrowth by saying, God not only knows more than you, he knows better than you in all things. So we come here this morning, not as judges of him, but as servants of him to hear him. You agree with me? Okay. All right. So let's get into it. First thing I want to get even before we give into this topic is to try to give a brief history of slavery in the ancient world. Even talk about the differences between the ancient world and new world slavery. Then hit some of the similarities of them. Uh, and then get into this text, address the text, and then hopefully by the end see that we, there is similarities, there's parallels enough that God is gracious to show us this morning in our vocation, whatever it is, he has something for you, okay? So that's where we're heading. So a little bit about slavery. Scholars estimate a third of the Roman Empire were slaves. 60 million slaves in the time of this writing. Corinth, the city of Corinth, kind of hit this perfectly. There a third slaves at the time of Paul's writing. A third were freed slaves, and then a third were freeborn citizens. Okay? And then in this time, they could become a slave. You could become a slave by being born into it, by selling yourself into slavery to pay debts, or you could be sold into slavery or become a slave by being kidnapped or captured by war. Also in this, 
time period and kind of this whole overarching socioeconomic institution of the Roman world, that slavery's had a varying degrees of work, of responsibilities, of really experience. And so uh, very similar to uh, the sugar plantations in Brazil and the cotton plantations in the South, there's vast ranches in the ancient world where slaves worked on plantations. Also, many of them worked in mines, just the worst work. But then there's also this whole set uh, of, of slaves that were doctors, teachers, managers, barbers, shopkeepers, musicians, artisans, and could even own other slaves. In some instances, even the slaves were more educated than their owners because in this, when we talk about work, the slaves of this day were doing all the work. And so if you need to learn a skill or trade to be able to handle all the work in your household, if you keep doing that for long enough, what happens, you end up knowing a lot. And up to the point where, hey, this family or this people need a doctor, and now the slave is a doctor. And, and this is it's just a while. I'm just trying to paint a picture of what's happening here, okay? But during this time, many of the slaves could expect to be emancipated during their life, even could expect to be emancipated by the age of 30. Uh, around the time of Jesus' life, they're, they're setting up some, uh, they're passing some laws, <laughs> not through the Senate, uh, the empire is setting some laws because too many slaves are being set free. So they say, hey, 30 has actually got to be the minimum, and we're only going to let this amount be freed. It's, it's ruining our, our, our institute. It's ruining our economy, okay? Can't, 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 we're bleeding out. But many of them could expect to be freed in their lifetime. Owners occasionally paid a sum of money to their slaves um, for their hard work for their service, for their relationship, for how they take care of everything in the household. But this fund was commonly used by the slaves to purchase their freedom. That's what is called, or what you've heard as manumission, of, of purchasing their freedom. And when they would do that, they would often get Roman citizenship and then uh, move from a uh, master-slave relationship to a client a business partner boss relationship. And now this person is a Roman citizen with all the legal rights of a Roman citizen, now uh, works and operates more independent than they were because before there was no independence. But there's some difference and similarities that I want you to see. And the differences are for the ancient world, it wasn't based on race. It was embraced on ethnicity. Um, in the ancient world, I just told you, they encouraged education, right? In the new world, slave owners discouraged the education of slaves. In the new world, it's lifelong. I just told you that in the old world, it could be 30 years. It could be at some point. But while many talk about this, wrestle with this, the similarities are there. Both were under the control of their masters and had no independent existence. Both had no legal rights. Both could suffer brutal mistreatment and abuse by their owners 
physically and sexually. Children, both, old world, new world, they're born into slavery, do not belong to their parents, belong to the owners. In both, slaves could be refused marriage. In both, uh, uh, spouses could be separated from marriage. Both were bought and sold like animals. Both were exploited. Both were dehumanized. And so I, I, I want you just to know the world, okay? I, I, I just want you to be able to understand. This is just good practice for you to understand that when I read a word, I don't need to first impose my uh, uh, meaning or my understanding of that word on the text. I need to understand what is he speaking of, okay? Not chattel slavery in the South, but this slavery, just so that you're understanding the context. But to try to nail this down, one of their own says the Seneca, speaking of the evil of slavery in the ancient world, he says, you may take a slave in chains and at your pleasure expose him to every test of endurance, but too great violence and striker has often dislocated the joint or left a sinew fastened in the very teeth it has broken. Anger has left a many man crippled, many disabled, even when it found its victim submissive. So ancient slavery, just like slavery throughout human history, is cruel and often oppressive. But in, in the ancient world, very highly contingent upon the individual master or owners. Meaning, the slaves, individual slaves, their experience depended upon their individual owners. And so, if you're thinking about Paul writing a letter to probably a house church in Ephesus that was to circulate to the other house churches in the region, we're talking about 45 people, maybe, and 15 of them were slaves. And he's saying, if something drastically needs to change in your attitude and your behavior in this terrible institution but something can change right now but, and now i know like our immediate reaction is throw it over right why, why not get rid of it why not try to fight why not wilberforce it right like that's where we get and i, I feel that too but but just go down where paul's at and see he is lovingly caringly speaking to these individual people in the church that have just become Christians and they're trying to figure out how do I continue life? How do I continue work? How do I treat people now that are different than me? How do I treat people where everyone in my society that I've grown up has seen inferiority and less than and, and mistreatment and dehumanizing? How do I now operate in this world as a servant of Christ, as a brother of Christ, as a child of the Father because of Christ? How do I interact with everyone? And he went through husbands and wives children and parents and now he's finishing the household now to be clear paul never gives a theological basis for slavery to be very clear why is that important because when he talks about marriage he's going to give a theological basis for it why because it's good and right and instituted by the lord if you want to hear the father's opinions on slavery read exodus Paul doesn't give a theological basis. He assumes its presence in society and helps these believers understand what it means to live as a Christian 
in this socioeconomic institution. But what I love, if you see it with me, you'll see it and love it. In what he says, he undermines slavery itself. And so, now let's look at it. Ephesians 6, verse 5. So if you remember, he said wives and spoke to them. He said husbands spoke to them. He said children spoke to them and parents spoke to them. Okay, now speaking to slaves. Slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as you would Christ. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing God's will from your heart. Serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to people, knowing that whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive this back from the Lord. I just love that. I want to slave or free. Just to hear the dignifying aspect of that. <laughs> that, that the Lord says, in your system, you may work like a dog all your life and never get paid what you deserve. Never get honored for your life. Never be appreciated or rewarded for what you've done, but not in God's economy. Slave or free, Jesus sees you and he's going to reward you for your good works. So first, again, Paul speaks directly to the members of the household. And this is remarkable. I, I don't think I said that the right way or with the right emphasis. He speaks directly to these people in this household. Addressing them specifically is dignifying and honoring in this culture. Think who he's spoken to. Women, children, and slaves that would not be addressed, would be spoken about, would be spoken of how you're to deal with them, not addressed specifically. And Paul sees them as God sees them, as free moral agents capable of thinking for themselves and acting with moral responsibility. What do I mean? They're humans. <laughs> They're humans. Created in the image of God with inherent dignity, value, and worth, and, and they are accepted members of this community. In contrary to what some did in the 18th century, to put certain groups of people in the balcony to keep them from the rest of the people. Paul is saying, no, 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 no. No matter your status, no matter where you're at in this, this world, no matter how people see you, you are made in the image of God and you are, have been redeemed into this family. Can you think about that? Having no legal rights in your life and now being treated as a person who's been given all the firstborn rights of the Father. And he says, this is how you are now to interact and live in my family because this is your new reality. And so he says, obey your 
masters, similar to children, obey your parents. Different, clearly, as we made clear, different from submitting wives to their husbands. But the slaves are to obey with deep respect, with a sincerity of heart, as to Christ. That's the piece. As to Christ, as to the Messiah, as to the liberating king. Not serving to be seen or only working hard when your master is around. No, serving, not just only when you're seen, but serving because you've been seen. Serving because you've been served. Serving because you are being served all by Jesus. So that's what he's saying, as to Christ. That is to bring up not the lordship of Jesus first, but to bring up the suffering servant first, the Messiah, the one who in your place died for your sins. That's how he's served you. So that's how you're to serve. That's how you're to work as to Christ. And so he gives them a new motive, a new attitude. They are to serve the human masters well because they are ultimately slaves of Christ. So not begrudgingly, but from the heart, meaning wholeheartedly, with a good attitude as to the Lord. That's, that's often translated as goodwill. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Being a slave and being mistreated probably for years then being saved by Jesus and trying to unpack all that means for your life. But because the goodwill that you've experienced from the Lord, now your attitude can be goodwill to someone who's even treated you harshly, bitterly. Your service to them is a service done for the Lord of himself. That's, that's what Paul is orienting. And so he's helping them in their temptations. And, and, and I'm going to make parallels to our work here, and every commentator has because it's there. But he's helping them with their temptation towards laziness or losing heart and serve begrudgingly. And isn't that an apt word? for me and you. That in our vocation, in our callings, and all that God has given us, endowed us with the responsibilities, the wiring, he said, and then this is your life, this is your calling, this is your vocation. Do it to my glory. Do it to the good of others. And so he's, he's helping us here. Because in work, this, this ditch over here is not doing work, is laziness, is not seeing the joy of work, not seeing the meaning of work, only thinking maybe just wrongly that work is a result of the fall and just not seeing that God said, hey, I've created you for this. To be involved in the cultivation and protection, ruling and governing of this world, I've called you to join in with me and rule it with me. Work, to toil. But also he protects us from the other ditch of losing heart in our work and doing it soulless, mindless, 
begrudgingly, hating it, being like every 90s sitcom trope of just trying to get home so that you can get to the couch because your work is the worst and I can't deal with it. I've got to veg for seven hours after eight hours a week to try to balance it out. But he says, your job might not change, but your motive and attitude can. And that's true for all of us. Your job might not change. Your boss might not change. Your boss might not change. But your motive and your attitude can. Deeply and more real than even their experience they change masters. Maybe in your function, in your practice, that's what needs to happen with you. That what a good attitude and a, a good motive, you know where that, what's that birth by? Working unto Christ and not for others. Working not to be seen, working not for the accolades, not working just when people can see or acknowledge what you are doing, not working <laughs> begrudgingly, but even finding joy in menial tasks. Why? Because God's presence in your life breathes meaning into every good deed, every good work, everything that you create, everything that you establish, every, every time you bring chaos in your workplace or in your household uh, and you bring order to that chaos, that's what you're doing. And you can do it to the glory of God because you can serve the master joyfully and not false masters. You can choose to work to his glory and not your bosses. Or to try to sum it all up, or really let Paul add into what he's saying here in Colossians 3.17, he's 317 he says, and whatever you do. Don't jump to me and you. Don't jump to our relationships. We're talking about work here. Your vocation, the thing you give your life to. The, th the thing that some of you guys give more hours to than your bed to sleep. And it is meaningless and soulless <laughs> and only going to turn begrudgingly if it's not done to the joy of the master who is your master who saved you, loved you, and given you life. I, I remember, whatever you do, I'm sorry, word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him got too excited, I can't even finish. But I remember <laughs> when I was in college, at this time, I was, yeah, I was in Bible college, and I was working at a warehouse on the north side of Fort Worth, and uh, a lot of good times there, love, just good memories, but uh, there's, one, there's one guy there that uh, I was very frustrated with, and uh, you know, often I'd like to tell stories where I'm not the hero, where I've failed, uh, I'm just going to tell you about another guy who failed, and I'll tell you why. But 
You know, it, was another, it was another guy in this warehouse, and it's just a massive warehouse, eventually bought it by Berkshire Hathaway. And, and so we're doing a ton of, we're doing a ton of work, just a ton of volume. And I was a stalker, and so all it was is just to pick up all this stuff and go take it to the, you know, the 100,000 foot square house and stock it up on levels uh, two stories high, you know, cherry pickers, uh, forklifts, all my, my boys aren't here. They would be excited. It's, it's fun stuff, right? But I remember in the stocking game, what you're trying to do is get everything done in that shift. Everything that's coming that day, that's what you're trying to do. And, and when it's going, it's going. You're trying to get all of it done. It's not like, hey, we can pass this off to tomorrow. We can't wait for this. Like, we've got it today. This is it. And uh, I remember there was another on our team of, of probably six. There was a, uh, another stalker who's a Christian, talked about it, was vocal about it. Uh, I got to talk with him uh, many times. I got excited. He's very vocal about the gospel. He's evangelized. Like, I was excited about this. Okay. But uh, he shot himself in the foot with his evangel- evangelism because his work did not match what he's saying. Meaning he's saying there's freedom in this master. There's joy in this master. Hey, give your life to this Jesus who will turn your world upside down and give you life and meaning and purpose. And then he would go and he would raise up his cherry picker to like the, you know, the highest level and sit there and read a Christian book for an hour while the rest of us were working. It's frustrating. Why? Because he's fallen off in the ditch. He, he's, he's worried about Mike uh, Bourgeois. That's not his name. Uh, why did I bring up his name? He, he's, he's worried about our supervisor. That's what I was trying to say. He's not even worried about us seeing him. That, that's, that's the term that Paul coins here. People pleasers. Serving to be seen. He coins this. Christians are to serve because they have been and are served by the Lord. So Jesus is your Lord, not your supervisor. So work to the glory of your Lord, not for the appearance even to your boss. And then the good news is he doesn't notice. Let me say it differently. The good news is he notices all your effort in all your right attitude, in all your good work. He won't miss a thing. He says he will gladly reward you. The most moving thing yesterday to Jerry's funeral was his brother's testimony of Jerry's life and then finishing it truly and honestly with Jesus' word to him, well done, good and faithful servant. Why? Because... Through his life, he failed, but his pattern was to work and to serve and to love to the glory of God. Even people in politics that he disagreed with, even with people that fought him, even people that gossiped about him and tried to undercut him, there was respect there from him to those people. Why? Because Jesus changes up everything. And your status is not your job, your vocation, 
how much money you have currently, what you drive, or what your title is, or what other people in this room think of you, your status, deeper than anything else, abiding longer than anything else, is beloved son and daughter. And so he notices and sees and is willing and ready and excited to reward you for all you've done to his glory when you come into his presence and he can say, yes, I see it. I saw it all. The thing that no one saw. The attitude that no one saw. He's going to reward you and call you too. What the parable speaks, enter into the joy of your master. Enter into the joy of the Lord. And so when the, the Bible says he moves from Christ to master, he moves from Christ to Lord, I just want you to think about the Lord and try to, to bring your gaze of it so that your work does have meaning and your work can be done with a different attitude, different motive. So Jesus being your Lord means that he has control over all things, sovereign rule. It means he has the authority to do that. So he has the might to do as he pleases. He also has the right to do as he pleases that's his lordship but also it means his covenant presence with you that he's not merely present in this world but he is covenantly present with you to bless to serve to help to walk with you the lord is in control the lord is in authority the lord is covenantly present with his people whether they are in slums, slavery, or suffering, he is with them. And isn't that what we really mean when we sing words like, he won't let me down? Isn't that what we really mean? It can't mean he won't let us walk through the valley of the shadow of death. It can't mean he won't pain us with sufferings throughout the rest of this life. It won't mean that we will reap terrible consequences of our own decisions and folly and sin. What it means is that he's going to hold our hand and be present with us and walk with us through it all. He won't let us down. That's what it means. And so because that means Jesus is your Lord and that's what it all means, then you can work to the glory of him no matter your boss, no matter your situation, no matter your environment. It might change. You might need a change. I'm not saying you shouldn't go look for another job. I'm saying, though, if what really needs a change is your attitude and behavior, let's go there. And stop always changing your environment when it's us that needs to change. I thought that would preach. I'm going to say it again. Okay. And if that's the case about the Lord, the master, what about human masters? Verse 9. And masters, treat your slaves the same way without threatening them, because you know both that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. So, as you saw from the brief, brief history of slavery, it was common practice for owners to abuse, mistreat, threaten their slaves. But in the same way, he says, they are to have a new attitude. They are to have a new 
motive. They are to treat, masters are, owners are to treat their slaves. Aristotle, a few centuries earlier, called it chattel, called them property, called them possessions. That they are to treat them now with respect and sincerity of heart. Why? Because you have a master. He cares deeply about how you treat humans made in his image, and he cares deeply about those he is covenantly present with. So without threatening them, that, that literally translates uh, eliminating the threats. Eliminate the threats. Take it off the table. Deuteronomy 10, 17 kind of elucidates this. It says, For the Lord your God is the God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, mighty, and awe-inspiring God, showing no partiality and taking no bribe. And then where James may have coined this phrase, and Paul picks it up, it's James 2.1, My brothers and sisters, do not show favor to him as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. That, that word, that expression, is built on the Hebrew expression, to, rec- to receive or esteem a face. Meaning, to prefer someone based on their appearance, position, status, or wealth. God shows no favoritism, no preference for one's social or economic status. Neither should owners. They should treat their slaves the way God treats them. And if you see it with me, you see that in this, Paul is undermining slavery itself. Because what he's doing is saying this changes how they relate to each other, and that plants the seed for slavery's destruction. Why? Because how has God treated you, Master? He's freed you, loved you, cared for you, only dignified, respected, and built you up. John Stott talks about it not as... uh, maybe a rebellion immediately in the first century that we wanted, but he says the gospel immediately began even in the first century to undermine the institution of slavery. It lit a fuse which at long last led to the explosion explosion which destroyed it. In 1 Corinthians 7, he encourages to get their freedom if they have the opportunity. In Philemon, he addresses the owner to not only receive back the runaway slave, but now to treat him like a dear brother in Christ. The gospel undermines slavery. Clearly seen throughout the whole Old Testament, but if you want a summary, the first time Jesus enters the synagogue and picks up a scroll and reads from the Old Testament, he says, this is what I've come to do. To preach the good news, set captives free. This is the good news of the gospel. It undermines slavery and was the driving force for Wilberforce in Great Britain. It was the message that gassed up Martin Luther King Jr. here. Why? Because the Lord came to preach good news and set captives free. And so, I want you to think about that. Take this in, but now let's just turn and think, okay, how does this affect me? How does this, what are the implications of this? This isn't, you know, this isn't our household. This isn't our culture, okay? But what about my work? 
Two simple things from Tony Morita. He says, employees work through Christ, like Christ, and for Christ. Christ is with you, so do your work depending on the Spirit's power. Work through Christ. Work like Christ. Hard to the glory of God, whether you're a carpenter, a preacher, a housewife, a janitor. Work like Christ. And he says, work for Christ. Charles Spurgeon, he says, did anybody thus dream of supervising Raphael and Michelangelo to keep them to their work? No. The master artist requires no eye to urge him on. Popes and emperors came to visit the great painters in their studios, but did they pain, paint the better because these uh, grand eyes gazed upon them? Thousand apologies. Certainly not. Perhaps they did all the worse in the excitement or the worry of the visit. They had regard to something better than the eye of pompous people. Work for Christ, to his glory. Not needing everyone to motivate you or to look over you, to micromanage you. Why? Because your Lord is with you and empowering you to work like him. Charles Spurgeon, I'm sorry, John Stott said this, and I think hopefully this gives just very practical things in all of our lives. Our great need is the clear-sightedness to see Jesus Christ and to set him before us. And this is the vision. It is possible for the housewife to cook a meal as if Jesus Christ were going to eat it, or to spring clean the house as if Jesus Christ were to be an honored guest. It is possible for teachers to educate children, for doctors to treat patients and nurses, nurses to care for them, for solicitors to help clients, shop assistants to serve customers, accountants to audit books, and secretaries to type letters, as if in each case they were serving Jesus Christ. Your boss can change today. <laughs> Maybe not in his presence and actually being your boss, but in your mentality of like, who are you actually working for? Work like Christ and work for Christ. And then bosses, managers, employers lead through Christ, like Christ and for Christ. It's the same thing. Through his strength, like him, like him he's the one that showed us that leadership is the authority to serve he came to serve he touched the unclean he bent down to wash the disciples feet he stopped to listen and to help people lead like him and lead for him lead for not your bottom line for him have a deeper why to your business and your operation and your vocation than the world. Because there's one there. It's your choice to say, this is why I work. This is what I'm going to serve for. This is what I'm going to bow down to. This is what I'm going to give my life to. This is how I'm going to put all my effort towards. Who? Who is it going to be for? A human master, a failing person, a boss, or Jesus. And if it's Jesus, it's going to change every other relationship you have with your co-worker and even your boss. So if I would go back 
before this, I take myself back to Ephesians 5, where it begins some of this, and he says, to imitate your father because you're dearly loved children. And then he said, you're treasured by Jesus who gave his life for you. And he's also told us that we're indwelt by the spirit in 1 Corinthians 7 to make sense of this. He says, you're bought with your price. That, that has immediate implications for sexual ethics, but he also says it has immediate implications for how you work. You're bought with a price. So you're not your own. You belong wholly to the Lord, to the mighty one, to the one who has the might and the right to rule the cosmos, to the one who is covenantly present with you, the one who saved you and empowers you to good works. And because of this, again, <laughs> your boss might not change, but your motive and attitude can today. That's why Jesus is good news. Because the Lord doesn't lord it over you or domineer or bully or mistreat or dehumanize. But came in our place for us. Worked hard to the glory of God, obedient to the point of death, death on a cross that we might become sons and daughters. So which Lord, which master, who are you going to serve? Who are you going to work for? Who are you going to work like? Father, we ask for mercy in this. We ask for help in this. We ask for a, a biblical vision of vocation that permeates our hearts and our minds and how we address this week and our whole life. So I, I ask, Lord, Messiah, King Jesus, would you lead us where you want us to go? Would you speak to us by your spirit? Would you convict? Would you renew minds? Would you call us to see and to set you before us? In Jesus' name, amen.